as an engineer, one of the things that you can rely on the most in the early days is this ability to prototype super quickly. And when we did all of our early user interviews, we were able to do an interview, immediately jump, prototype, think about it, work on something actually tangible. And there's nothing quite like being able to build something immediately and see how it does. Welcome to Engineering Founders, the show for engineering leaders making the daring leap to start their own company. In this episode, we have a conversation with Sagar Bachu, co-founder at Speakeasy. We're also joined by special guest co-hosts, Emma Tang and Roger Luo, who lead ELC Angels, our community of engineering leaders interested in investing in early stage technology startups. We get into topics like what it means to be a DevX company, finding your first founding engineer, shipping a product before funding and the ensuing pivots, and attracting top talent for early day hires. About Sagar, previously he was director of engineering at LiveRamp. As the first engineering hire for LiveRamp in London, he scaled the team to 50 plus and established the group as a center for privacy and analytics. Sagar loves DevTools and chicory in his coffee. About Speakeasy, Speakeasy helps you create world-class developer experience for your API. They're a developer-first API ops platform that enables developers to offer a best-in-class API developer experience to API consumers. Enjoy our conversation with Sagar Bachu. Welcome, Sagar. Thanks, Patrick. Super excited to be here, be part of ELC and, and talk about Speakeasy and just the journey that we're on. Well, we're excited to have this conversation with you. And there's a number of things that make this conversation special. You personally, you've been involved with ELC for some time. Um, and we've had an opportunity to have some conversations together. But we're also joined by two special people, Emma and Roger, who are also longtime ELC members. They also support uh, ELC Angels and help manage that. And on top of that, they're early supporters of Speakeasy. So um, they're here to help us tease out some of the special elements of your story at, at Speakeasy. So Emma, Roger, welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Patrick. Really glad to be here as well. Thank you, Patrick. Really excited to join. All right. Well, let's dive in. So, Sagar, why don't we start off at the beginning? So, can you bring us to the beginning of Speakeasy? What were you doing and what inspired the idea behind the company? Absolutely, Patrick. So, Speakeasy uh, started really, I would say, almost two years ago when I was actually working at a company called LiveRamp, uh, which is a big identity platform. And I was in London at the time, uh, leading engineering out there for the company. And we, I think it was, you know, over the holidays, I was sitting around and thinking about how do we improve developer experience at LiveRamp at the time. And I had also been spending a lot of time building out developer infrastructure teams, dev tooling kind of squads. And one of the key focuses of the company over the past few years had been how do we become more API first? And how do we actually leverage uh, the amazing customer base we have in a way that's more modern, in a way that we can integrate with partners? And so I was kind of toying on with that idea. And one of the things that was really challenging at LiveRamp at the time was that we ran things uh, at true scale. Uh, I'm talking petabytes of scale going through the company's systems every day. And so anytime we wanted to build out new developer tooling infrastructure, it was a pretty daunting challenge because you had to build for scale. You had to worry about how are you going to get adoption internally, which our, our engineering team was pretty big. It was 500 devs or so, but to actually get it to all 500 devs and then to our external developers in our ecosystem, uh, that was still a pretty big task. So I was thinking about that at the time and, and really started to 
uh, realize how big developer experience in the industry was trying to become. Um, and so that was the original kind of origin story for Speakeasy. And I think what was especially interesting was the, the team out in London was one of the first international pushes for LiveRamp. And so we were literally duct taping things together from day one, didn't have a ton of support from kind of core platform teams in the company. Um, and so very much felt the pain of what I like to call the 99% of developers out there, which is having to operate solo, not with great tooling. And that was how this all started. There's a lot of people who relate to the pain that you highlighted there. As I think, as you said, it's a very common one that a lot of folks face. So can you tell us a little bit about the transition? How and why did you originally transition from your time at LiveRamp to then start Speakeasy and to, to build out the solution to this problem? Uh, maybe I'll actually give a little bit of quick background on what we do at Speakeasy, and I think yeah. that might help talk about that transition. So what Speakeasy is, is it's an API ops platform. It's a fancy way of saying that we really want to make it super easy for everyone to make the API self-service. Today, when you think about API consumers, they struggle with all kinds of problems when integrating with APIs. And this is especially pronounced in the world of REST APIs, which are Ubiquitous, you know, 80% of the industry and in, in growing, but also sometimes most rigid and difficult to integrate with. And at the same time, the companies that host these APIs uh, often have to build out really expensive internal API platforms to make those APIs great and easy to use. And that's just a really expensive task, as well as not an easy one. Platform engineering is a difficult kind of problem. Platform engineers are far and few. And so Speakeasy aims to democratize this idea of an API ops platform where today what we do is we ship a set of embeds so that your customers can self-service API integration and then also batteries include client SDK so your users can have a great experience working with your APIs. Um, so that's in a, in a nutshell what Speakeasy does today. And you know how I actually transitioned to working on this, like I mentioned, while at LiveRamp, we actually had an internal API platform that at the time had been championed by our chief architect, uh, Andrew McVeigh. And it, it really drove to the heart of this idea of making it easy for devs to ship APIs in a repeatable way. We had a DSL uh, that allowed you to define APIs super simply, repeatably. Uh, it did a lot of great stuff like generate specs and clients, but I thought we were just scratching the surface of what you could do with this idea of bringing good DevX to API development. Um, at the same time, um, I started reading about how in, I think it was last year's Postman State of the API report, they stated that nearly 50% of all dev time is going towards either building APIs or integrating with them. So just this massive point of leverage I thought we could have is if we had a great API platform. Uh, so th that was the original motivation behind the technical side. In terms of transitioning and actually, you know, from an engineering leader to a founder, uh, when I quit LiveRamp, I actually tried my hand at interviewing for founding engineering roles. and. Um, I hadn't interviewed at a company for almost four to five years, I think. So I probably didn't do that great on the interviews, but also going through them, I realized that what I wanted to be doing was what the founders I was interviewing were with were doing, not necessarily a founding engineer. So that distinction, I think, is not actually super obvious to a lot of people before they take that leap and, and explore it. So I realized I wanted to be going through that steps of finding customer value, building a team building a community around your product, thinking deeply about how an ecosystem evolves. Um, and so going through that interview process really helped me take that leap of faith. It's kind of funny because it's almost like the person interviewing there, like that was the opposite effect that you're probably looking for. Is like, oh, it actually confirmed you don't want to do that job, which um, is really interesting in hindsight. 
Absolutely. I had to apologize to some of the founders I interviewed with when I realized I had just taken the time for my own purpose. But uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm very thankful and grateful for those early interviews I did. Emma and Roger, this is an area that, that you both have some some interesting experience in. Like what Sagar has been doing and Speakeasy has really resonated with you or, or gotten you excited about the journey that they're on. Yeah, I think the way Sagar says it, it makes it sound like it's such an easy thing. But I right? know from firsthand experience, it's extremely difficult to pull the trigger on something this big. I mean, obviously, he's an exceptional engineer and exceptional leader. And maybe that's why it's easier for him. But I'm also curious. Um, it's kind of another angle of the same question, which is like, Obviously, you saw a gap in this market and you realized like in terms of what you wanted to do, you wanted to be a founder. But what about like personally how you felt? Was there anything in terms of like your experience working at these companies or like growing up that made you feel like you were more predisposed to become a founder? Like what were some of the factors involved in like finally pulling the trigger and be like, this is what I want to do. I'm sure I want to do a really hard thing for like five to 10 years uh, minimum, right? So I think like from a personal perspective, what did it feel to make that transition? How did you feel? You know, give us a visceral <laughs> description of what happened. <laughs> Absolutely. Pardon my French, but I was shit scared, right? <laughs> Going and doing that. Uh, I think I was really lucky for a couple of reasons. One, for a variety of reasons, the LiveRamp alumni group had a ton of founders uh, in the kind of that broader ecosystem, people who had worked or been associated with LiveRamp, probably as a result of, you know, it was a company that had gone through a hyper growth period in, in the near past. So a fair number of really high caliber people worked there when I did. Um, so leaning on them, their experiences, I essentially already had a little bit of a founder community before I took that leap of faith. I think the other thing that really helped was that I was able to take the leap of faith without having to balance another job at the same time. I, I kind of stopped working at LiveRamp, took that leap of faith, took a couple of months off, and then really started to go after this problem. Obviously, you know, that may not work for everyone, but for those it does, I would definitely recommend diving head first into these kind of uh, experiences or journeys um, and finding a community that's doing it with you at the same time. So I joined uh, a group called South Park Commons as well in San Francisco, which is I would actually describe as an anti-incubator, the group that's fantastic at helping you build conviction, go minus one to zero instead of the traditional zero to one of incubators. Um, and that was a community where lots of people were also shit scared <laughs> of this journey that you go through, uh, but also uh, really excited about it at the same time. So it's important to have that energy. In terms of going from an injuring leader to a founder, one of my, I think my most foundational experiences was uh, being involved in some M&A or merchant acquisitions while at LiveRamp. You know, much to the um, credit of the LiveRamp corporate team, they really built a great relationship with product and engineering and drove these acquisitions as a joint venture. And so this really gave me some exposure to how do you think about enterprise value? How do you assess it against different options? How do we think about different organizations working together, scaling? These are all tough problems. And actually, we, we actually talked about it at the last ELC summit as well uh, with King, who, who is still an engineering leader at LiveRamp. So this was a you know really foundational experience and helped me understand what it takes to uh, build an ecosystem around something you're doing and also understand an ecosystem. Like That's one of the most important things, I think, when you get involved in m and you just have to know everyone. Uh, all the players in a space, how they all stack rank. You need to have these visual maps in your mind. And I think that those kind of skills are what you need to eventually go be, be a founder. That totally makes sense. So now you have become a founder. What are the things that 
you found maybe easier than expected or harder than expected, especially giving your background as an engineering leader? Was unexpected either in good or bad ways? Totally. So as, as an engineer, one of the things that you can rely on the most in the early days is this ability to prototype super quickly. And when we did all of our early user interviews, we were able to do an interview, immediately jump, prototype, think about it, work on something actually tangible. And there's nothing quite like being able to build something immediately and see how it does. And so that was probably, you know, one of the advantages of being an engineer is my background that I was able to lean on. Also, I would say that, you know, we'll probably get into this later, but building a developer experience, developer-focused company also means that you have unique insight into the customer. And so as important as user interviews and doing the researches, it's also important to kind of sift through your own intuition and pick out what you think might apply to other folks based on your experience. So uh, that was another area that we were able to lean on. And you mentioned like becoming a developer first company. What does that really mean, you know, for you and in your experience at other companies? So it's important to remember there's now, I think, 30 million developers on GitHub listed. Like it's no longer a small group of people. And there is also now this evolving ecosystem of products and tools that we call developer experience. Uh, so I think that's what's happening externally. But in terms of, you know, building a company that's focused on developer experience, uh, it really means you have to embody that yourself. So everything you do internally uh, has to have great developer experience. Products that you build internally should be shippable externally as a product in itself. So one of the kind of core tenants that our team works on is that anything that we build pretty much can be used by our customers directly. Uh, and so we're always a customer of ourselves. A little bit of inception there, but <laughs> the basic uh, idea is that uh, you are the product manager. You are able to go talk to a customer. You're able to kind of emulate being a customer. Um, and that's what I think uh, for me, at least, building a developer experience company is all about. I'm curious, Roger, like, what's your perspective on this? You've worked at great companies, you started companies. What does it mean to be like developer first? What what companies are suited to be developer first? And are there companies that are not suitable to be developer first? Yeah, I think that's a very good question because uh, being an engineer or work at different company of different sites, we have seen the power of tools, different kind of development tools built by engineers, how it can improve the productivity of the company, make a really scale and the efficiency. But at the same time, I think uh, I read some market studies, like there are like uh, thousands of development tools, and uh, this space also become really noisy, right? So how do we know that, right? So what are the potential value of the tools, or whether the, the customer is willing to pay for that? To me, I think I want to look at uh, if you want to be a development-focused company, one on the front the product perspective, right? Developers need to be uh, willing to use it. There's a community behind it. The second one is that in, in terms of like the value it provided. So uh, regarding the value, need to see like uh, how it helps in scale, improve the productivity. So uh, to justify paying the value behind it. I think I'll just add to that. You know, one one of the really interesting trends that's happened is when we think about how organizations have changed. Uh, the development team has gone, I think, traditionally from being purely a cost center, still a cost center today, but to also having a lot more ownership, a lot more say about how things get built, how the company actually uh, works at a very deep level. And so we've suddenly have this new big group of buyers with a lot of leverage within the company, which also means a lot of budget, a lot of direct impact to the end customer. So you're now selling to the developers directly, where in the past you may have been selling to a proxy, like an IT team or product, like that might have been the case. And more and more, we're seeing that you're talking directly with engineers. Um, so I think that's a really amazing change that's happened, one of really high leverage as well. 
Yep, totally. And I'll guess I'll add my two cents here, which basically echoes what Satgar and Roger have mentioned already. I think my experience at Stripe is like developer-led, developer-first. There are like kind of two concepts in there. One is like your customer-facing like roles. Like, are you developer-first? Are you focused on developers as your customers? The second part is like within your own company, what is your culture? I personally have, and I don't know if this is the correct way, but I personally think if you're selling to developers, it makes sense for you to also have a developer-led culture within your company because then you basically are, are dog, like, like Satgar mentioned, you're dogfooding your own stuff much more quickly because they're the decision makers as well and they're also the internal customers. At Stripe, what that means is you want to remove as many scaffolds around preventing developers from making ultimate decisions as much as possible and leaving more decision power to developers versus other functions of the company. And I think that leads to a little bit faster iteration. Again, I think for developer, like for companies that are selling to developers, it makes sense to kind of like have the reins be held by more developer-focused uh, teams. And on the other hand, obviously, like Sagar mentioned, is having a really good, you know, developer focus experience, having really good documentation, being really active on Hacker News versus other platforms, et cetera, et cetera. I think those are all things that, you know, benefit more of a developer customer base. Can I ask a follow-up question here, Emma? I think this thread is awesome because I'm thinking about the perspectives of somebody listening to this who maybe wants to build a developer-first company um, and is a few steps before you, Sagar. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of like building the developer-led culture in these early days? Like, What does it look like to model that? And can you tell us a little bit about the, the early day experience when you brought in your first, second, third, fourth, or, or however many hires? Sure, absolutely. Uh, this is actually something we love talking about at our company is um, I think it comes down to having a set of simple but very well-defined company values that you can actually lean on to make decisions on a weekly basis, especially early days when every day is like filled with tons of decisions. Why this is important for dev-led uh, companies is because in developers in this scenario are the ones who are building the product, defining the product, standing in front of customers, making the sale. And so uh, having those core values needs to be something that traverses all the way from how do we work with each other to how do we work with customers? How do we think about tough decisions that are going to be made? We actually did like a company values day zero and it was just my co-founder Simon and I and then did it again when we had our first hire and continue to do it every time we have a hire or every couple of hires. And so that's, I think, a super important thing. Another you know, really interesting point around this is just how you actually bring on founding engineers, right? To your point, Patrick, it's, it's a tough one because all of us, I think most of our strategies and patterns here have been developed around larger companies where you're trying to fill like a pretty well-defined box, right? You need a DevOps engineer or you need an SRE, right? And that has like a list of 10 things that you're hiring for. When you're hiring for a founding engineer that you don't have really a box, right? You have like a general idea of what this person needs to do and know that you're going to be asking quite a lot of them. So I think one of the things that we did and we had a little bit of insight around after failing, of course, was spending time collaborating with these founding engineers before they actually joined the company. So not only running an interview process, so to speak, but just uh, having them contract with us, you know, uh, for a week or two, giving them a real piece of the product that will get shipped to a customer, and then just jumping in with the team on Slack and, and in real life and working with us to get a sense of how, how the fit was. So I think that's two of the things there uh, that I want to mention. This is a really specific tactical follow-up question to that, but what was the project where, because I know you landed your first founding engineer, what was the project that you were like, this this person is it, they're, they're a great fit. Do you remember that that project in that moment? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our first founding engineer, actually, Anurag, who we met through South Park Commons, uh, he was at the time exploring himself, actually, you know, like what to do next, whether to be a founder or not. And we started working together. I think I had two kind of moments where I felt, oh, this person is going to be kind of game changing for us. And also we were able to give him an internal value prop that made sense. Uh, was the first incident was early on. Um, I think the first time I spoke to him over Zoom, I was traveling in London and he was in SF uh, and immediately added him to Slack and we started working together. Uh, you have this feeling where, oh, you've already been working with this person for a week, right? But in fact, you've been working with them for like two hours, right? And so that that feeling of like just fitting in, it's a hard one to describe. And so I think that was my first moment where I said, this is a, this is a founding engineer. And then I think the second one was... Uh, he joined us for actually a customer call that we did and walked away from the customer call and immediately started to kind of implement a couple of different ways that we could go after this problem or the pain points the customer described. In this case, at the time, we were pretty focused on more of the API infrastructure that the APIs would run on. And so he was able to very quickly prototype out a couple of things in Kubernetes and really bring it to life. So I think founding engineers bring things to life and he was able to do that really well so that was second moment where we where we said okay you know this person is uh, should join our team that's great i think it's super helpful to hear that that perspective from some of those things emma i know you had a follow-up question or i know you had a new direction you wanted to take the conversation <laughs> you can so. tell from my face <laughs> yeah take it away you know so i have some inside deets on speakeasy and i knew you guys have grown a lot in just the past two months i think you went from like zero to six seven maybe people within the last two months which was crazy and most of these are engineers which <laughs> i know like it's always been such a tough market it's always been like so hard to hire engineers you, we were just talking about how you found out someone was a good fit for your company but i think the reverse is actually more problematic for most founders like how do you convince people to join your company and for you you've been having so much success obviously i know you know you're in a really great market api market's growing like crazy you are you have a really great product so that kind of sells itself as well and you yourself are a great leader but like from your perspective what is the secret sauce to attracting people to want to come in yeah great question emma so as a founder in the early days you have so much anxiety around what's going on right there's just a ton of things to do <laughs> and in that craziness it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is not just you asking someone to join your company like there's an employee value prop that you have to provide as well in return, right? I'm not, and you know, that's not just compensation and equity, like that's table stakes. I'm talking more about why is this experience differentiated for this person, right? We, you know, over our careers, maybe have 10, 11 shots at going after uh, something really meaningful, say you work a couple of years at each of these things. And so it's really important to make that employee value prop clear to whoever you're asking to join. Um, and, you know, having them trial with you is just, a way to show that. But really what it has to come down to is uh, we described it as a few things. One of them is we want folks who work here uh, in their next life to be able to say, I worked at Speakeasy or say X Speakeasy needs to mean something, right? The way it does probably for Stripe today, right? saying you worked at Stripe really means something. That kind of speaks for itself. And then secondly, I think both Simon and I felt strongly whoever joined us should be set up so that they can go do this themselves in the future. They can go take that leap of faith. We hopefully will be the biggest sponsors in the future um, and go start that company if that's something they want to do. So I think that's two of the I think core parts of what uh, having great employee value prop means. Um, and yeah, I, I just wanted to emphasize that as I think founders 
get really caught up in the moment of just all the craziness in the early days. And that's totally right. Completely empathize with that. But it's really important to differentiate what is that value prop you're uh, giving to your early employees. Yeah, that's a, that's a very great answer. Very, very insightful. I know that you come up with the speak easy idea by yourself and then you also recruit, uh, recruit a new co-founder, Simon. Can you share the story of how you two decide to work together to build a company? Sure. I, I will start off by saying, I think having a co-founder is just so uh, important for doing a startup. There are obviously people who have succeeded and are doing great without co-founders as well. Um, but personally, I felt that you need someone to wake up in the morning metaphorically speaking, be able to call them and say, what the hell are we doing, right? <laughs> and so that kind of taking on some of the emotional burden with you is in many ways the kind of partnership you're trying to build. So I, I started working on the idea technically, uh, been building and prototyping different things, been talking to different customers. When I met Simon to a friend, the first kind of thing that we did was we immediately threw uh, ourselves into the problem together. So you, when you start, as they call it in the Valley, co-founder dating, you have to immediately assume that this person is your co-founder, right? And so you essentially give them half the responsibility of everything you're doing and see how it goes, right? And that's like the best litmus test is uh, to figure out whether this is a good fit. And that includes doing customer interviews together, building together, trying to recruit together, which is a quite interesting one. And also uh, there are you know a couple of tactics that are quite common as well. Things like the 50 questions for co-founders and also spending time together, really understanding each other's motivations is also quite important. So I think I, Simon and I did all of that and that I think really cemented our early partnership. And to be honest, it was, you know, I think five or six months of working together uh, before we formally took the leap of faith. And by that time, it was essentially a no-brainer. So you want that time working together to make the decision for you. Can you share a little bit more about those early moments? Because this is the first time I've heard of like the co-founder dating experience where you immediately give 50% of the responsibility to, to other people. How do you have that like conversation where it's like, okay, we're, we're testing out how this will go. Here's what you're responsible for. Here's what I'm responsible for. Let's go. What did that look like for you and Simon? I'll be honest. I don't know if I had a formal conversation where I said, okay, you know, this is 50% of this is yours. What I think it is, is just having trust in that other person to think like a founder, assume this is also their company that they're building. And if sometimes I felt, you know, if they're unable to take that uh, kind of perspective, that in itself is a pretty decent filter, I think, to figure out if someone is the right fit or not. Um, and that doesn't mean they can't be a co-founder. It just might mean that you two as, as co-founders might not be the right fit. To be honest, there wasn't a conversation. It was more of throwing, in this case, him into the deep end and just seeing what happened, right? Like, how was he able to consume all this information? So I, I had this, you know, as most people do, this Notion site with tons of things in it. At this point, already completely disorganized, lots of interviews, lots of articles. And I think he essentially worked through that in like one day, right? By the end of the first day, he had all the contacts that I had uh, which I think was a great sign that, the, the you know, I think everyone is capable of that, but it only happens when you actually throw yourself in wholeheartedly. Um, and I think that was the telltale sign that, oh, that was a replacement for having a real uh, conversation about it. It's been really cool to see sort of like the implicit qualities and characteristics of of Simon and the founding engineer and sort of this like bias for action, going in, getting your hands dirty and immediately starting to apply and, and be self-sufficient. People always talk about like you need to be autonomous, you need to have ownership in the early parts of a company, but it's really hard to like, it's been really cool to see that at the core stages and almost how natural that felt for those two early hires. 
I was gonna like jump in and ask Ashley a question more about building the product because up to now, hiring people, finding a co-founder, they're all to achieve a purpose, which is ultimately to build a product so that the customers buy it. So I'm wondering in your case, what is the product building process has been like? I know for a fact that you guys iterate really fast. I think you guys had a product pretty early on that was like shippable to customers. And I know that you guys have since then sharpened your focus, like, you know, further down to like really figure out what the product should be like. And what was that whole process like of like building a product and finding out how to further uh, sharpen different areas so that it satisfies your your customers? Totally. Uh, there's nothing more important than getting product out in front of customers actually using it and, and iterating, giving feedback. So you're absolutely right, Emma. Early on, when we were exploring Speakeasy, we had this very basic product that uh, did what Speakeasy does today, this API ops platform that uh, abstracts away a lot of the kind of self-service features of building APIs. And we did that with actually annotations at the time. So th this is a technical detail, but I think important one to point out to show that pivot, that iteration that happens. Um, and, you know, annotations are like a static concept in code. It allowed us to do a couple of things really quickly, like doc generation. But as we uh, went through it and, and shipped that to a customer, um, they were able to use it, but definitely faced a lot of problems. It kind of fell short of that overall value probe. And this, I think, often happens with founding teams early on, especially when you're iterating quickly, is you kind of hit this local maxima in your product space that you're exploring, right? Like you think you've had this insight, so you go build it. And then once you ship it, you realize, oh, okay, you've missed the bigger picture. And the only way to figure that out is to like find an early design partner, a sponsor, someone who's like willing to take that uh, leap of fate with you essentially. And, and that was mostly work that I kind of built myself. And since then, the team coming on board, we essentially have ripped it apart and start from scratch, right? Um, and that is pretty much driven by customer interviews, by uh, actual customer requests. Uh, and all the insights that the founding engineering team brings as well, and my co-founder. And so we actually pivoted to a much more code-first SDK model, which was has turned out to be much more dynamic, much more uh, of a value unlock down the road as well. My biggest takeaway is not being precious about those early uh, approaches that you have, especially as a co-founder. You have kind of everyone says, this is your baby, this is what you're building, and it's easy to like get stuck uh, in that local maxima. Mm -hmm. uh, I think always important to like define a clear vision for what you want your company to become, and that is what guides you along with your customers rather than the state of things today. Mm, that's really well said. So now, let's say we're focused on building product, but you actually have, I guess say like two main stakeholders. One is like your ultimate customers, which you're building the product for. And the other not so like obvious stakeholder is probably your investors. How do you approach, first of all, approaching investors when you're in the fundraising process and then subsequently working with your investors? Totally. Um, so this is such a fascinating topic as a, as a founder, <laughs> right? You know, if you're a repeat founder, you have experience in this probably if you, this is your first time this is also another place you're definitely jumping in the deep end. My, I think, biggest takeaways from uh, this process was, first and foremost, like definitely be authentic to yourself, right? I think fundraising is such a heated topic that it's easy to start representing yourself in a way which is not true. Um, so I think always remember, like your experience, rely on the insights you've had, rely on your your kind of own self uh, to be the best representation of, of what you want to build and where you're going. And secondly, maybe a little bit more of a salient point is every time you're talking in that kind of investment environment, always remember you're always pitching. And what that means is, it, sure, not every conversation is about fundraising. A lot of it is relationship building, which is important. But to yourself, it is really important to remember that every time you talk about your company, 
it's another opportunity for you to really be building that momentum behind it. And it's important that those early relationships you build, they believe in what you're doing uh, and you're able to explain where you're going in a very credible way. So I think just remember that I think for founders, every conversation early on is pitching to someone. And that's not necessarily just investors, right? I think even to customers, to other potential hires, like you're always representing your company and that company could be a notion page, but don't let that detract away from that actual process of always pitching. Yeah. So I think that's super important. For folks that maybe are like either tired of talking about their company or it's like, ah, oh, shoot, like I, I don't have the momentum to talk about this. Like, how do you regain your energy or regain the momentum to be the chief evangelist of, of what you're doing at Speakeasy? Like when you've had maybe the 10th investor call in a day and you've got to go back to the well and bring that same energy and enthusiasm and commitment to the mission. Like, do you, do you have a process or, or a way you do that for, for somebody maybe who's listening to this is like, oh, shoot, like I'm going to run out of momentum in the afternoon. Like, how do I, how do I keep up the stamina? What's your approach, Sagar? I, I'm definitely no expert in this. I, I can speak to what worked for me. Um, I think the important distinction there is that uh, if you have, you know, a fair amount of conviction in something, you may be physically tired of doing that task of pitching and talking about your company, but mentally, you should still be excited, right? And for whatever reason, if you feel like the excitement start to decrease, that might actually be a place to test your conviction and think a little bit more deeply about like, is this what you want to be working on? Mm. Uh, because, mm. you know, this is definitely a marathon, not a sprint. And so if you can't completely get behind this, even when you're at your most like physically tired, uh, I think that can be a way to kind of take a pause and say, okay, do I need to think about what I'm doing here? And I, I do recognize that's a pretty opinionated <laughs> view on the topic. So uh, I'm sure people have built successful companies even when they've you know, lost conviction and, and come back to it. So uh, that, that was at least what worked for me. I just think that's, that's great insight for people to be aware of in that moment is to take stock and assess. So thanks for that. We have a few more moments. Emma, is there another, or, or Roger, is there another topic that either of you want to get into before we wrap up with some rapid fire questions? I think it's worth mentioning that we just started ELC Angels. A little bit of an intro for folks who don't know, we basically are a collective of engineering leaders who are looking to partner with, invest in, you know, really great up and coming companies, usually in the seed stage, sometimes maybe the A, but really early on. We want to partner with folks from you know, the ground up. We want to help with the nitty gritty stuff. And we also want to learn from these amazing founders, right? Some of us, uh, like myself, like Roger, we're also like uh, entrepreneurs ourselves. And for any engineering leader who's interested in starting a company, this is like a great way to understand how it actually works. And our first partnership is with Sagar and Speakeasy, which we're so mega excited because we've really seen the whole journey that Sagar has been on and we have so much confidence in what he's building. So we're really excited to get the chance to partner with him this time around. Um, so I think that is itself really exciting. So if you want to learn more, feel free to check out our website. There's a link to Yelsey Angels. Feel free to email me or Roger as well. There's so many things I still want to ask Sagar about. I feel like maybe we need to do a follow-up, especially like the amazing hiring. That's like crazy. That's a podcast in and of itself. I, I know. And then all the other insights about fundraising. I want to hear more. Well, the, the other part I got excited about at the very beginning, Sagar, you mentioned this very inauspiciously, and it was about lessons you learned about M&As and how that's helped you out as a founder. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, there's probably like a whole five things you could learn from the M&A process and apply as a founder when you make the transition. So yeah, Emma, totally agree with you. There's so much, so much stuff that we could get into, I think is a part two. Okay, we've got a couple quick rapid fire questions, Sagar, if you're ready to close us off. Absolutely, let's do it. All right. What are you reading or listening to right now? 
So reading, I'm reading a book called uh, Build, uh, an Unorthodox Guide to Making Things Worth Making by Tony Fidel. He was an amazing designer and builder who built the Nest home thermostat, a couple of other really amazing products that are kind of surround us on a day-to-day basis. And that journey that he went through is just super inspirational to read. And it actually has like a nice nifty website with it as well, uh, where you explore the products that he built. So super cool, uh, inspiring kind of thing. I also uh, big on sci-fi. So I read Andy Weir's Hail Mary recently. Andy Weir is the same author who wrote The Martian. So if you may, might have also seen the movie, like great, also somewhat of a nerd out sci-fi uh, where he gets into details about everything that happens. So uh, that's another thing I've read. That's great. The multidimensional like knowledge and learning experience between like a book and a website to explore things like that sounds like a really cool layered learning experience. Underrated for sure. Totally. What are the founder resources that you found to be most helpful? You know, when I was kind of prepping for the podcast a little bit, I was thinking about all the different you know resources that are out there. And then I realized, you know, set aside all the LinkedIn posts, all the articles, the thing that has helped me the most, honestly, is just talking to other founders and doing that on a regular basis. Like try to talk to at least one other founder when you're going through this journey. And it doesn't have to be a founder in your space. Like don't you don't have to talk about the domain. I think just talking about the experience, the pitfalls, and really these are people who can truly empathize with that experience you're going through. And you need that from time to time, given how difficult uh, some of this early journey is. So yeah, talk to other founders and Founders are extremely happy to talk to other founders, so they will almost never say no. I love it. Two quick questions left. I think if anybody's listening to this, could probably tell, it seems like you keep, at least you demonstrate a very even-keeled manner. So how do you do it, man? How do you diffuse stress? Uh, The truth is I don't, but (laughs) (laughs) I attempt to with a couple of things. I've for many, many years been big on yoga and meditation. So I try to continue that and generally try to continue a couple of these kind of core outside work activities that I've been doing for a much longer period of time. My morning walk to work, I keep my phone in my pocket. I try very hard not to pull it out just to enjoy that moment, a couple of moments of sun. Well, in San Francisco, lack of sun uh, as we walk to work and just take in the, in the environment around you and appreciate it. And then I think finally, keeping a relatively simple and consistent routine when you get up, when you go to bed, what you eat, uh, try to make the rest of your life stable because this is will definitely be the most you know, unstable thing in your, in your life. The, the last point about stability is such a great point for uh, doing something like founding. I love that. Last question, Sagar, to close us off with, is there a quote? or a mantra that you live by, or a quote that's really been resonating with you right now? So I don't know if this applies to all parts of life, but something I've been thinking a lot about with the team, given when this like core phase of building and working with customers is this idea of like ask for forgiveness, not permission. And to me, what that means is, you know, if you're excited about something, just go do it. There's a kind of analysis paralysis that we can all fall into um, when it comes to what we're doing at work and maybe more broadly in life as well. But that's just a kind of a quote that gets brought up like every day at stand-up. So I thought I would just share that here. A very thematic way to close, given some of the stories that you've you've shared uh, about the folks that you've been able to bring together uh, through Speakeasy. So Sagar, thanks so much for, for joining us for the conversation and sharing everything that's going on. Emma, Roger, thank you both for coming in and, and sharing your experiences as well and, and helping us dive deeper. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Patrick, Emma, and Roger. As always, super excited to be part of ELC. Thank you for coming on. 
Thanks for climbing aboard our pirate ship of engineering founders. Make sure that you click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify so you know when our first few episodes get released. And if you want to connect with other engineering leaders who are interested in starting their own companies or who've already made the leap, we're building an engineering founders community. We'll be hosting a ton of virtual meetups, sharing resources, and lots of other fun things to support your founder journey. So if you're looking for support, sign up for updates at elc.community. That's elc.comunity. And we'll see you next time.